A podcast where we go one-on-one with fiction creators, such as authors, filmmakers, actors, songwriters, and more. Each episode, we get the inside scoop on our guests' creative process, the ups and downs of their industries, and our guests also give out tips and tricks that help them become successful. And now, let's jump into the episode with your host, Chris C.L. Lowry. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the Fiction Addiction Podcast. My next guest is a professional electrical engineer and ex-Navy nuclear electrician's mate who pulled up anchor at 18 in California and set out to see the world. Through many twists and turns, she slowly made her way north to Alaska, where she immediately fell in love with the last frontier. She enjoys playing with live electricity, exploring Alaska or snuggling with her editor, Kat Felix. You can find her and her husband, Ray, in Anchorage or hanging out most summers at their off-grid cabin near the small community of Chicken, Alaska. Ladies and gentlemen, Daniela Shepard. Daniela, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. What is going on? <laughs> well, uh, you know, we we went for a walk today and almost got trampled by a moose. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's the time of year that the um, the moose are just having their brand new calves, and so there's a, a place we like to walk near our house. It's a nice trail along the the it's the coastal trail. And so the the mama and baby moose like to hang out there and eat the greenery. So there we saw three separate mom and baby moose pairs on the trail and mama moose are very protective of their babies. So we had mm. to like hightail it through some bushes to get away. Oh, wow. <laughs> now you are in Alaska and we are currently obviously um, in, I don't even know what month this is. I guess this is month three of a global pandemic for uh obviously the united states how has this pandemic affected your life um, in alaska you know uh my husband and i joke a lot because uh, other than my day-to-day job i've been working from home as an engineer but otherwise we're we're pretty quiet you know we we do a lot of stuff just at home so day-to-day it hasn't really affected us most much other than my my day job of being an engineer working remotely so and then you know of course a lot of obviously a lot of restaurants and stores and stuff have either modified their operations or they um they've closed completely so a lot of our favorite places we can't go to but otherwise we we hang out alone a lot uh you know we have a cabin off grid so we we're used to being by ourselves Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> so what what is what is life like being off grid? So is that completely no contact, phones off and everything like that as well? Yeah, so our cabin is about 400 miles away from Anchorage. So the the little community of Chicken was the second town incorporated in Alaska. And the first town was actually the town of Eagle. And so it's about uh it's up near the Canadian border, you know, north northeast of Anchorage. And um, when we go out there, there's no cell phone service, no AM, FM radio. 
uh, no power, though we're, we're installing, we're, we're working on our, our first solar, solar grid kit this summer. We're going to be doing some tests on it and getting ourselves some power. We bring our own, uh, we bring a small generator for running power tools and stuff, but otherwise we're completely off grid. Wow. So what is, what is life like off grid? Is it, is it more peaceful? Is it more relaxing? Or are you constantly thinking about stuff that's on the grid? Obviously, being the author. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> well, uh, we enjoy it a lot. We um, it's very peaceful and quiet. I mean, literally, we're up on a ridge uh, overlooking the Forty Mile Valley. Uh, when when we're sitting out there by ourselves, we could go in the summers. We'll we'll see a couple of cars a day drive by on the highway, but in the shoulder seasons, like in the fall or in the the spring when we can get out there, we might go two, three days without seeing another vehicle on the road. Oh, wow. It can get so quiet out there. So the river is four miles away. When it's really quiet, we can hear the river at night. Oh my goodness. So uh, it's amazing. <laughs> it's beautiful out there. We really like it. Uh, for people who follow my blog or see my website, there's a lot of pictures from our cabin. I try and take pictures of what we're doing out there and what we've got going on. We actually, because of the virus, they they kind of close travel within the state. They just kind of ask people to stay within their communities. And so we usually we try and go out there in like mid-March. But uh, we stayed home this time because we're like, well, you know, considering all things, we'll just stay here. There's no rush to go out there. And so we didn't make it out there until just this past Memorial Day weekend. And it was actually kind of a good thing because they had a lot of snow this year. So there was a lot of flooding. The road actually got flooded out oh, wow. going to our place. So it's kind of a good thing we waited. But um, yeah, it's it's pretty remote when we get out there. We can drive all the way up to our place. But uh, yeah, there's not a lot of people out there. I think the last census said that there's only six people who live out there in the region year round. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually pretty funny because one of the six people, um, he's a caretaker for the one of the businesses out there in Chicken. And so he stays out there at the guy's business during the winter. But then in the summer, he decides he goes out to his claim, which is like 50 miles off the road system, because in the summer, there's, quote unquote, too many people for him. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, there's some characters out there. You you meet some unique individuals, and I've blogged about that too. There's there's one guy who used to live out there, and uh, his his nickname was Toad. We still don't know what his real name was, but he was one of the last uh, people to take care of the old town of Chicken. He was left on as a caretaker by Fairbanks Exploration. And he stayed on for 10 years after they closed down operations. And then when they finally said, we're never coming back, he moved off to his own place, like a couple miles off the road. And it was only just, um, I think it was last summer, he decided that it was getting to be too much for him. He's in his 80s now. So he lived off the road there like for 40 years by himself. Wow. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, his, his, his favorite saying, that he would tell my husband, he said, I love tourists. I can tell them anything and they believe me. <laughs> Now, how was this the transition from California to Alaska for you? 
Well, um, it was it was kind of it, it was definitely a gradual transition because I was I was in the Navy in between. And so I went from California to um, exotic Great Lakes, Illinois, where I went to boot camp. And then I went to Orlando, Florida for nuke school. And then I went to Charleston, South Carolina for uh, what's called nuclear prototype training. And um, I was there and I got picked up to be an instructor after my last school. But unfortunately, um, after being there for a couple of years, I developed multiple sclerosis. And they said I couldn't be in the Navy anymore. And so I was medically retired and sent off to make my fortunes. So uh, when I got out of the Navy, I was hired by an electrical testing company and they moved me to Seattle. And so I worked there for a wow. few years and um, I decided that I wanted to pursue uh, getting a degree because uh, I was working as a field technician, which was a lot of really hard work and having MS and doing what I was doing was really taking its toll on my health. So I decided to get my electrical engineering degree. And once I did that, um, I got a job offer to move me to Alaska. Mm. What were your first thoughts when you got that offer? I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to pay me to move to Alaska. And it was, I was just like, right. wow. Now that being said, it's like, uh, I got the offer and like, I got the offer for the interview in October of 2006. And so of course, you know, that it takes some time to go through the whole process and then actually, you know, making the formal offer. I moved to Alaska in uh, January of 2007. And my first week up in Prudhoe Bay was like the beginning of February. And I stepped off the plane and it was like minus 30. Wow. And I was like, oh my goodness, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> right. Hey, oh my gosh. <laughs> I, it, it, but I have to say it was beautiful. Um, it was, it's, it's hard to describe if you've never been there. It's, it's beautiful up there, like just stark and desolate. But when it's like really clear and cold, it's just amazing. But it, it's definitely harsh. <laughs> yeah, the, the coldest I've ever worked in up there uh, was it, the temperatures were minus 65 with a wind chill of minus 80. Oh, my goodness. And, and just so you know, we don't we don't really go outside much when it's that cold, only for like real emergencies. You know, every everything right. just kind of everyone just kind of hunkers down and waits for it to warm up a little. But it's. When it gets that cold, I mean, it just, it's miserable cold, just bone chilling. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> so when did your writing journey begin? Um, I've always liked to write. I mean, ever since I was a kid. And so, um, I, but to be honest, I would just write stuff and throw it away, like, I always like to tell stories. I would I would entertain my my younger brother and my cousins with the stories I'd make up. I actually did get a book published by young authors when I was like seven. And it was called There's a Dinosaur oh, in My wow. Classroom. Wow. <laughs> but uh, other than that, I would just write just for me. 
it, it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I said, well, why not just try and get published? And what was the publishing journey like for you? Well, um, it was definitely, I guess you could say, eye-opening because it's like, okay, you know, I did a lot of research into well, what does it take to get published? Um, you know, trying to get a manuscript as good as it can be. What does the market look like? Um, I really started trying to get published back in when I started looking at when you know, I want to try and get a manuscript published. It was probably around 2016 that I said, you know, I'm really going to, I'm really going to try and I'm going to start doing my research into what it takes. And, um, so a lot of rejections, um, a lot of analysis of, well, what, uh, what is, what are people looking for? You know, reaching out to agents, connecting with other authors online, like on Twitter, on Facebook, that has been a huge resource of getting great knowledge in terms of, you know, getting feedback on your writing. Um, I decided to self-publish this particular novel, novella that I have out right now, just because um, there's not a lot of interest from the publishing industry in novellas. They want like full length novels. So right, right. I'm still querying a lot of my full length novels. But I decided this one, it's like, I'll use this to build my platform and just to see how people like my novels. What do they think of my writing? Right. So what, what, what has been some of the feedback you've gotten from that release? Uh, you know, so far I've gotten some really positive feedback, you know, that a lot of people are very intrigued by uh, the legends behind the story. A lot of people are you know, who've never been here to Alaska are very intrigued by the way I've written that part of Alaska. I've definitely written a part of Alaska that a lot of tourists don't see. A lot of people, you know, when they think of Alaska, they might think of, you know, the the places that the cruise ships go with the big glaciers and the whales. Yeah, They're not really thinking of what the interior is like. Now, one one of the interesting things I saw on your website was a saying that said, "Writing is better than therapy and booze." <laughs> Explain that. <laughs> um, well, I I like to write. Um, just you know, it's one of the things I do. Like like I said, throughout my whole life, I've loved to just write. It helps me to get out emotions or feelings that I can't quite say out loud. And I've always felt that even, you know, like even going and seeing a therapist or, you know, drowning, drowning myself in whatever vice, whether it's chocolate, booze, whatever, just doesn't compare to just sitting down and writing a story about it or writing a blog post about it. I feel like for me personally, getting whatever angst or emotions out and just putting it down on paper really helps me more deal with issues than just, uh, you know, drowning it or even talking about it for some reason. Right. Now, when, when, now when you're doing this writing, um, like you said, you, you were querying, you're reaching out to companies. What allows you to push through after receiving rejection? 
You know, um, for one, I try not to take it personally. A lot of times uh, what I've written is just may not be what they're looking for. Some cases, the timing isn't right. You know, that's it's not what they're looking for at this time. Um, in some cases, uh, they just don't connect with it. Uh, in one case, it was it was pretty funny because I, I entered like a, a pitch event where you just pitch your you pitch your writing to various agents. And um, I thought I found it kind of humorous because um, I pitched it and this this particular agent liked my story. And I read her profile because it is kind of upon you to to kind of learn a little bit about them because, you know, anyone can, you know, can participate in these events and say that they're an editor or an agent. So you got to do your research, too. Well, I researched her and her profile said she just absolutely doesn't want any horror or dark writing. And so in my in my mind, I'm going, well, why is she participating in a pitch event that's all about dark writing? Right. So, so before I, before I queried her, I, I reached out privately. It's like, hey, you know, I, I'm really glad you, you liked my pitch, but I mean, your your profile there says uh, you you really don't want dark writing, and and this is I'm warning you, this manuscript's going to be very dark. And she's like, oh well, it sounds like a great premise. I, I'd love to read it. And I'm like, oh okay. And sure enough. <laughs> I gave it to her and she read it and she was just like, yeah, I don't get this. And I'm like, that's cool. It's, it's just not what she represents. I mean, if you think about it, um, having the right person championing your work is just as important as, you know, having good writing. Imagine if the wrong person had championed like Harry Potter, it might've just been put on a back shelf somewhere and no one would have read it. Right. So it's just important to have somebody who just really gets it and knows the right people to connect it to. So I don't take it personal. In fact, usually what I try and do is if I get a rejection, I try to immediately send out another query within that week. Hmm. Just keep the ball rolling. Just move right along. Moving, yeah. Now, speaking of horror and dark tales, I noticed... (laughs) Um, you had some dedications in the beginning of your book. Um, one was to your husband, Ray, but the other two were interesting. One was to your sister, uh, Desti. Yes. And the other to your brother, Matt. And they both mentioned scary stories or horror stories. So what was that all about? What is that connection with you guys in horror stories? So uh, my older sister, uh, she's definitely a fan of romance. I mean, she is your like total like romance novel reader you know and the thing was (laughs) a lot of times at night i would stay up late and i would sneak my horror stories after bedtime when i was technically supposed to be sleeping and we shared a bedroom so she had to put up with me with the flashlight on half the night (laughs) stories that i probably like shouldn't have been reading but my mom didn't really know about Right. Well, she she you know I mean, she might complain to my mom that I was reading, but she never busted me on what exactly I was reading. <laughs> so I give her credit for that. <laughs> now, my younger brother and even some of my cousins, we'd we'd get together when my parents we, we would all go out camping or we'd go fishing or something. And so, you know, my parents were all like, okay, you guys just go away and play, leave us alone. And they'd they'd go out like night fishing or we'd stay out late. 
So myself and my brother and my cousins, we'd all gather around, you know, do the thing with the flashlight. And it's like, who could come up with the scariest stories? And it was always me. And my brother would always be the one, like, one more. You have to tell us one more. And it's like, hey, guys, it's getting late. And they're like, no, you have to tell us one more. But then also just growing up, I would read him stories at night before he went to bed. And his favorites were ones like uh, scary stories to tell in the dark, goosebumps. But in particular, as he got older, he loved Edgar Allan Poe. Really? So I would I would read him, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, and uh, he would always be like, oh, just one more story. And it's like, well, Matthew, you have to go to bed. He's three years younger than me. He's just like, no, you have to read me <laughs> just one more story. So I that's why I dedicated it. It's like, OK, Matt, here's your one more story. Here's your one more. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. <laughs> so what was what was your family's reaction? Obviously, with that kind of history, with 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 them always ask you to read more stories um when you guys tell the scary stories you always the one to tell them the best stories obviously publishing at seven years old with young authors then finally um becoming an author um and actually having it as a brand and as a business what was your family's reaction to it well they they knew that a story was coming you know we all live completely separate places so my sister actually right now her husband's in the coast guard and they live down in florida my brother lives in mobile alabama and my parents still live in california so i haven't seen them face to face they knew the book was coming out and each of them bought it like they have just now barely gotten a copy. So I don't mm. I don't know what their reactions to the story itself is yet. But I do know as soon as my younger brother read the dedication, he got his copy first and he immediately called my sister and says, "Ooh, do you know what Daniela wrote about you? <laughs> and my sister was like, what? What did she write? He's like, I can't tell you. You're just going to have to read it yourself. Yeah. You got to wait. <laughs> then what she did is she immediately called my my mom who had a copy and was like, what did Daniela write about me? And my mom's like, oh, I can't tell you. So, um, yeah, I don't know what they think of the story <laughs> itself yet. They they haven't yet told me, but uh, I do know they all have their copies at this point. I'm surprised, I'm surprised she didn't call you yeah, and say, hey, what you write about me in your book? <laughs> I, you know, I'm surprised, too, uh, that she didn't call. Now, your book touches on some of, of, of the folktale and the stories in Alaska. Touch on those a little bit. Um, the first being when you were first introduced to them. And obviously, also the history of the people of Alaska, because you, you go into that a little bit on your blog. Yes. Yeah, so um, we're, there's a, a couple of different basis for this tale. So my husband, uh, he's lived in Alaska now over 30 years. He came up here because his brother had a homestead in Slana, uh, which is near the, the region which the story is somewhat set near Wrangell St. Elias National Park, which is the territory of the Atna, the Upper Atna, Upper Tanana, which is the legends on which this is based. So um, one day he went for a hike in uh, f- through the Nebesna side of Wrangell St. Elias. This story is technically set in the, um, the eastern side of Wrangell St. Elias, but it's all still the same park. 
And uh, he went in to the visitor center and told the guy where he planned on hiking. And the guy was like, ooh, yeah, you know, I don't think you should go hiking in there. That's not a very good place. And Ray was like, you know, it seems like a nice day. It's shown here on the map. Looks like an interesting trail. And the guy said, well, I, I think you, you shouldn't go there, but, you know, I can't stop you. So Ray went and he went for his hike. And um, he said he got about a mile and a half or so from the trailhead. And he said the woods got like deathly quiet. You know, it's a hot summer day. And he said he just uh. felt really uncomfortable. And he turned around and he ran all the way back. Really? So, so just, you know, Ray is a pretty big dude. And, and he's skied across the Alaska range. He's climbed an alley. So for him to do that is a pretty big thing. Right, right. Well, it turns out, you know, he started digging into it. There's a legend associated with that area. It's called that area is called Roasted Salmon Place is the translation in the English. And there's a tale dating back like the earliest known like oral tale that is written down in a book um, called The Headwaters People. So the Atna are known as the, the Headwaters People. So they're headwaters of the Copper River. And um, the earliest known oral edition was written down in 1929 because all, all of the peoples out there, it's all oral tradition, all songs of the different tales. But there's these creatures called the Katene or Katen, known as the tailed ones. And this, uh, the oral tale of the, the tailed ones comes from the, the Atna and Upper Atna the upper Tanana tribes and the tribes in Slana. This that's where that tale seems to originate from uh, specifically. Mm. And when you, when you read the tale in the book of the upper headwaters people, I mean, it is creepy. Like basically this, this kid, you know, the kid from the tribe goes up into the Hills to go hunting and he doesn't come back. And so they go looking for him and they find these creatures basically playing soccer with his head. So wow. so they go back and they, you know, they and these creatures live in the caves in the hills. So they go back and they, you know, they trap the creatures in the caves and they they close up the caves and they they burn them closed. So that way the creatures can't come out. But as the legend goes, theoretically, you can still look up at the hills and see the creatures watching from the top of the hills. And so it's like, oh, wow, you know, I don't know if I'd want to live there. But um, now what's interesting is you look at like the so the the different tribes in that region, you go further east towards the Yukon, like the, the Gwetchen and the Dene have a similar stories. Not quite, you know, there it changes a little bit. I mean, that particular legend is very specific to that tribe, that the that region. But when you go over to British Columbia, where the Dene are, there's another valley and you can look it up online. Just type in the Headless Valley, British Columbia. It's a, a sacred valley of the Dene tribes where people have been turning up headless for years. And they can't explain why. And there's a very similar oral legend associated with the Dene. And it's like, oh, that's creepy, too. So that was kind of the the basis for my tale when I started digging into these oral legends. But what's interesting is you move further west 
away from that region towards Tana Cross and Tanana, there the legends shift and you don't hear about those creatures anymore as you move further away from Wrangell St. Elias National Park. Really? Yeah. Their their legends shift more towards um what what are called like the new Nuhuna, which is the like what they call the woodman or what we would consider Bigfoot. And then the okay. the Kolene, which are um the the wild men of the tundra or the bushmen is one of one of my one of my coworkers. He's uh he's he's got relations to like Tana Cross and Tanana. And so he'd never heard of the uh, the Katene, but he he all of his legends centered around like the Bigfoot, the Woodman, and the Bushmen. Mm. That's that's interesting because now did your husband know about those those tales before? No, he took his hike, or did he learn about it? That's that's. That's great. Yeah, he, he, yeah, he, <laughs> you know, he was like after the hike, you know, because you know after the guy was like, you know, the this place is a place, you know, now the the roasted salmon place now for a long time is is like a fishing spot. They go there when the salmon are running and they fish, but they don't they don't like you know it's it's considered kind of a sacred place now. But this story from the the book, it's like yeah, you know, you look up there and there's these things in the hills and it's like, Oh wow. I don't know if I'd want to hang out there. Yeah. But yeah, right. <laughs> but it, it's like, it's a really like you read the story and um, yeah, it's literally called when the tail ones were seen. Mm. And it, it's kind of chilling when you read it, it's like, wow. And, and what, what could these things have been? Were they real? Are they real? It's like, you know, you read, right, it's right. like, it, it it really does beg the question. Now, my husband is very much into geology. His uh, his he's an engineer as well, and his uh, his discipline is uh, he's a corrosion engineer, corrosion welding, non destructive testing. But his minor is in geology and metallurgy, and so the Wrangell St. Elias Park System has one of the biggest cave systems in the world underneath Mount Samford. So there are there's lots of caves under there and there's you know been lots of mining over the years. So he's like, yeah, there there definitely could be caves and things up in there. That's crazy. That is crazy. <laughs> yeah. So but it, it it was like, wow. And the more I started researching and reading some of these legends and talking to people, it's like, wow, this is this is really cool. You know, I I would love for more people to just, I mean, even just read the Headwaters People book of these different tales of, you know, these, these legends. It's like, wow, this is, this is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now your book, The Dark Land, break down that title for me. The Dark Land. So, I set it up as the dark land because uh, at where it's where it's set in, you know, in the park, your it's set in winter, which I have it set during probably the dark one of the darkest parts of winter, you know, January to February. Um, there's these these legendary creatures creeping around in the darkness. Um, that's, you know, kind of are evil 
that's kind of where I, I came up with it leading more towards, you know, it, there is going to be a sequel to the dark land. Oh, really? Yeah. So, um, it ends on a cliffhanger. <laughs> so, uh, but I'll, I'll try not to do any spoilers here. The, the first, right. <laughs> the first part takes place technically, like I said, on the, on the, um, Western side of, uh, Wrangell St. Elias, which is more towards what we call Kennecott McCarthy. Mm. So, but like I said, underneath it's all connected by uh, these lava tubes through the, the Wrangell volcanic system. The sequel is going to take place on, in the copper riverside, copper Lake. Oh, now you, you touched on it a little bit, obviously, with the tales, the Alaskan tales. Um, so what was your inspiration behind the book um, when you first came up with the idea? You know, the, it, it actually started out as just a, a short story. I, I intended to do just a, a short story about, you know, someone in the woods versus, you know, a mythical creature. Okay. And then as I started writing it, it got a little bit longer and then it was like, well, I started, you know, I read a little bit more. It's like, you know, I should include some of this too. And then it's like, well, wouldn't it be great? You know, I need to make this character a little better. And then before too long, it morphed into a novella. It's really what happened. Right. Cause it was like, well, wait, I've, I've got to include this. It's like, well, if I'm going to talk about, you know, they're here, on this side, I've got to include the, you know, the Nazina, which is, you know, I'm calling it the headless gorge or the headless ravine. It's like, Oh wait, well, if I'm, if I'm going to include this, I've got to include, you know, them traveling through here. And then, you know, the next thing you know, I've got a whole book. <laughs> That's an amazing thing. <laughs> That's a good thing. Now, were you nervous about telling this story because of the desire to stay authentic to the tale? Um, I was a little nervous that, you know, cause I, I do have friends that are Alaska native and some of them are Atna. And it's like, I want to, I want to not just like, I want to hint at the tale, but make it my own. But really what I want people to do is go, wow, this seems really cool. What is the real tale and go read about it. So that's kind of where I, I want, I wanted to purposely diverge a little. So that way people would go read the real story. Right. And um, I also you know, was doing my best to avoid, uh, you know, just avoid places that are sacred to their cultures, which is why I actually for this book set it on purpose on the McCarthy side. Uh, that makes sense. Now, you in this book, you have some very relatable characters obviously you have you have rose Ulrich, penny aaron even <laughs> but um <laughs> out of all the characters which one do you relate to the most you know i i definitely would say i relate to rose the most uh why is that well uh one i i tried to create her uh to be you know a strong female character um I did, you know, I, there are some issues in the book where you're learning about some of the trauma and abuse that she went through. And that is something 
I'm not writing exactly what I went through, but it is something that is near and dear to me. And I wanted to, it's a lot. How do I put it? I, I wanted to, for people who are victims of whether it's physical or sexual abuse, it's not watered down. It's someone who's experiencing true trauma. And, um, you know, that's, I feel like a lot of times that it gets glossed over. We tell victims, don't talk about it. So when you read that, a lot of people read that part and are like, whoa. And it's like, well, hey, you know, I, I think that it deserves someone, someone who has been victimized deserves to be seen. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's, and it's her role, you know what I mean? Even with that history of hers, the outcome, obviously we're going to not spoil it so everyone can go read it and understand what we're saying, but the outcome is empowering as well. Um, seeing her from what she came from. Right. Yeah, she's, uh, you know, she's struggled a lot in life, but is still manages to to move forward and progress and come out on top. Absolutely. Now, you have this story, obviously, you're putting together. Like you said, this was the first of a, your self-publishing journey. So take me through the process of finding... Um, your book cover designer, which looks amazing, and also everyone else around the team for this book, the editor, so forth. So uh, my my book cover designer, uh, her name's Avery Kingston. And so what I did, so the the picture you see that is the cover, that photograph was actually taken from the front porch of my cabin. Oh, really? Yeah. So that was taken in March of 2018 when we went out there and we were hanging out by ourselves. The reason it looks so weird, like if you it was taken at, you know, after the sun went down, obviously. And one of the reasons it looks kind of weird, you know, like the trees look kind of creepy in the background. Mm -hmm. The area around our cabin went through a massive fire in 2004, like over a million acres in Alaska burned. And um, so we've got kind of a standing dead forest around our cabin. And so we've got these almost Dr. Seuss looking trees around the cabin. So wow. I took that picture and uh, even the moon in the sky, though, she uh, Avery did Photoshop it to make it a little bigger. But that that picture is real. And I've even I've even put a few things on my social social media um, websites to show people the real picture so they can see it's like wow yeah that's that's it um mm. then the um you know the 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 picture with the hand and the eyes i just i got those you know stock photo websites you know that you, you can subscribe to and i just turned that over to avery and said okay this is kind of what i want can you you know what can you do with this and then she came up with the rest you know with the title and the, the fonts uh, the editing, what I did is I went through um, when I first started writing this story, when it was still probably like half as long as it is now, uh, there's a group of writers that I I've kind of befriended me. I befriended them online and I 
sent it out to a couple of them to read it. And, and they gave me like really great feedback. And one in particular um, on Twitter, she calls herself the witch. And she says that she's a terrible beta reader, but she's lying. <laughs> but she's also one. She does not pull any punches. Uh, really? Oh, she like she. There's parts she's reading my story, and her feedback is like Daniela, and I, I will I won't cuss here. Your character is acting like a dumb bleep. You need to change oh, wow. this, <laughs> Daniela. <laughs> this part is stupid as bleep. You need to just effing oh, change wow. this. But it's it's hilarious when you're when you're just reading through it just because I know her and I talked to her a lot. She's just hilarious. I mean, I'm laughing so hard at some of her comments that I'm about to, you know, pee my pants because she's just on a roll. <laughs> and then, you know, you her uh for her, she writes she actually writes young adult, but she also writes uh she has two different genres. She also writes some erotica. So I get to my sex scene because that's the part that I'm really like, oh, my God, what she's going to think. And she's just like, ooh, she is a naughty little bird. (laughs) (laughs) So you're just laughing and laughing. So and and I sent it out to various people and, you know, got lots of feedback. So that was like the first stage of the editing process. Right. So there was a lot of scenes I changed based on that feedback. And I added more. I, the, the beginning of the story, the very first scene changed dramatically. And in fact, you know, I was so proud really? of myself. I went rushing up to my husband. I was like, oh, my goodness, Ray, I'm so excited. Like, I just made the opening, the opening chapter way creepier. And he just looked at me as like it was already creepy enough. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like I was crushed. I'm like, what do you mean? Uh, so then, <laughs> then from there, um, as I started refining it, you know, I, I was actually using an online software program to help refine my editing. Um, I have another friend who actually I work with. He's not a professional editor, but he and his wife both have um, master's degrees in English. So I turned it over to them and asked them to, you know, like when I, when I was getting close to like a final copy, like a final draft after I'd run it through the auto the auto-correcting softwares. Because the problem with the auto-correcting softwares that you, you can subscribe to online, they only do so much, right? They're, they're, they can only correct so much. So send it to them. Because I felt at that point I had quite a few of the plot holes fixed. Now, uh, I also gave it over to my husband because, like I said, he's an avid outdoorsman. He knows a lot about Alaska. He knows a lot about that region. One of the the funny things that he caught and uh, one of the things that I get a lot of questions about when people read the book that are not from Alaska, they, they're like, oh, my gosh, Daniela, you have a lot of guns in this book. Is this real? Do you guys carry guns? Mm-hmm. And it's like, actually, right. yeah, <laughs> when we're out at the cabin, like there's like we've had bears come in within 30 feet of the cabin. I was about to say that, yeah, but say because of the animals and things like that. Yeah, so we're we're, we're carrying we carry a, a three thirty eight rifle and I carry a forty four, and a lot of people are just really shocked by this, but it's true. That's what we do. Uh, but um, what was funny is there's there's a scene in the book that originally was just laid out way differently, and my husband's like he reads and he's like, oh my goodness, Daniela, you have to change this because if he really were to shoot that caliber of rifle at one of those things and that thing was on a bed they would not be sleeping in that bed that night and Mm. i thought about it and i'm like oh my god you're right (laughs) 
<laughs> so uh, mm. it was you know, you, things like that. You have people checking for things like that. But even after with stuff like that, you know, handing it over to other people and doing what we like to call the typo hunt. You're just, right. <laughs> you know, like, so uh, we're just going through it. Like I went through it forward and backward at least four or five times. My husband went through it. My friend and his wife went through it. Um, we, we still found lots of typos. We turned it in, put it, you know, uploaded it to Kindle. And wouldn't you know it, like since I've been published, I've found five typos. Really? Yeah. It's just like, I mean, we, we've had multiple, like multiple people edit it. You know, even we even ha had another professional editor because I'm actually getting it published through like though I've got it on Amazon and on Kindle. I'm self-publishing it here in Alaska to get it into like Alaska bookstores and stuff. I'm going with a local publisher distributor. Oh, really? and yeah, and they, they've got a great network here. And he looked through it. You know, he kind of did an, a final edit for me. And it was just like so it's gone through so many hands, so many eyes. And it's like. There's still typos. And it was funny because uh, one of my um, my other writer friends online, his book is out right now. It's called The Tear Collector. And he was like, yeah, those dang typos. He's getting ready to uh, to he's writing his sequel to his book. His book's been out almost a year now. And he was like reading through parts for like something that he was doing online like this, like a podcast. And he found two typos. Mm. And he's traditionally published. Right oh, wow. <laughs> so really? we, we joke there. They're pernicious typos are just. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're going to find their way in. No yeah. matter what. <laughs> they are. They are just. The, and the funny thing is that the typos that I'm finding, they're not like they're not like an obvious typo. They're ones that are they're more like um, what they call them homogens, where it's a word. That could be another word like, you know, on or one mm -hmm. or he or her. And it's like, ah, oh, they drive you nuts. <laughs> now, now explain this, explain this um, publishing company you're going through, through Alaska. You said they got the, uh, a lot of reach out there. What's that world, literary world out like there? So uh, the, the company I'm going through here in Alaska, uh, the guy uh, who is, uh, who started it. His name is uh, Flip Todd. And so it's Todd Communications. And they are just basically an Alaska publishing distributing company. So they only publish like local Alaska authors and local Alaska content. And then they just all any bookstores here in Alaska, they get their books through him. So um, anything that's like local Alaskana, they get through him. So when you, you come into like a, a tourist shop, say in Skagway or a, like a princess lodge, like if you're doing a princess cruise into Juneau or even into Anchorage, he distributes to those stores. Wow. That's going to be big. <laughs> well, it would be if we were having any tourists this summer. Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> but hey, you know, hopefully we'll have a few and it's not like the books go bad. They'll be there next summer. Yeah, they'll be there. They'll, <laughs> they'll be there. And who knows? People, you know what I mean? Once, once because this summer, obviously, has been affected. Who knows what the winter? I don't know. 
how does how things are going to change you know what i mean because people are so eager to get out and continue their old routines oh yeah well i i do know unfortunately <laughs> the cruise ships to alaska have been canceled for the summer Wow. canceled or delayed um, I don't know. I do know that they they're talking about in J- June 1st, potentially reopening the border from Canada so people could potentially drive up. Drive up. Okay, that'd be good. So how, how did you link up with uh, Mr. Todd? So um, we have you know, Alaska is kind of a small place in a sense. We have I have another friend. Um, who he uh, runs a media business. He creates like um, kind of commercials, movies for um, various companies here in Alaska. So like, for example, um, I'm trying to think of a company. There's, there's a company that does flight tours of Denali called K2. So he would create like the movies that, you know, advertise what they do, like, you know, the, the long flights over Denali. And um, there's other people that go out and they do flight tours where you go look at the bears out at um, Katmai. So he would t- create a video of people going and looking at bears. So he, he runs a media company that does that. So uh, he's an old friend of my husband's. So I asked him, it's like, okay, well, if I want to get my book into Alaska bookstores, who do I contact? How do I do that? And he said, you got to talk to Flip. Mm. <laughs> but it's funny, Flip, uh, his his history in Alaska is really unique because his, his parents lived up here and they were both writers. And he was like, yeah, after... You know, like watching my parents, he said, the one thing I decided I never was going to do is be a writer. So instead, he he's in the printing business and distribution business, Mm -hmm. but he's lived a very unique life. So. That's crazy. And it was was like perfect. It was like perfect that you had that connection that everyone's connected. Oh, yeah, there's it's there's and the nice thing about here, at least uh, my feeling after being in Alaska for 13 years is everybody's really willing to help each other. I mean, like people really just, um, you know, really want to support each other, support local Alaskans. You know, everyone wants to see everybody succeed, even even right now with this whole like uh, COVID thing and lockdown. People are like, Hey, you know, let's, let's buy from the local stores, you know, take out, you know, let's, yeah, let's do whatever we absolutely. can. Absolutely. Keep supporting them. So now, what made you want to make dark land, the dark land, uh, a series? Was that always the plan or did it just come about once you, once the pen took over? <laughs> you know, it, it will once again, like I said, it started out as just a um, it started out as just a short story. But once I started writing the, the story of Ulrich and Rose and started writing the story of these creatures, it was like, you know, one Wrangell St. Elias National Park is so big. It's the largest national park in the United States. It's like, all right. And I'm writing it over here in McCarthy. But really, we know that these creatures could be over there on the northern side of the park and on the eastern side of the park and it's like all right i need to i need to find a way to explain how these creatures come to be you know you don't want just a story where it's like okay there's these creatures you know there's got to be a little bit more i felt so uh, i wanted to um 
to go to dive a little deeper into it. And then as much as I like my two characters, Rose and Earl Rick, and not to give away any spoilers, they will be back, I promise. But um, I wanted to do to kind of create some more characters that uh, that I, you know, like that I'd been kind of been in the back of my mind. Really? Yeah. Now, these characters, it's funny because I'm hearing you talk about Alaska now and, and having read the book is like you can see so much connection. So are so these characters, are they inspired by people you meet, some of your friends, or are they just uh, strictly imagination? Uh, you know, it, it's funny because uh, like working, I worked for the longest time up in Prudhoe Bay on like a two on two off rotation. And I had the the pleasure of working with a great group of people up there. And most of us, you know, were, were believe it or not, female, females or a bunch of great group of girls. And a lot of them would read my stories. They'd like beta read my stories. And if you've checked out my website, I have a whole bunch of other stories. And uh, my friend Olga, she jokes, it's like, yeah, it's great to kind of sit down and read your stories. And it's like, OK, you've kind of got a piece of one person here, a piece of another person there. And then another piece of this other person, and you've kind of Frankenstein them together <laughs> to make this character. And she's like, I'm sure if we read them all, we could figure out who is who. Who is who? <laughs> so, yeah, there's and, and there's some, you know, like that are definitely a little bit closer to other people, like in my imagination than others. Uh, it, it is funny because um, there's there's a particular scene in the Darkland where um, the older woman stubs out our cigarette on the creature's head after you know like, and I was like, yeah, my my husband's like, yeah, that's our friend Barbara. That's what she would do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Because <laughs> she's, you know, she's just like no nonsense. Like she's, she's actually from um, Lime Village, which is out. Like if you're looking at a map of Anchorage, and you just go straight across the water west on the peninsula, Lime Village is out that way. So completely different direction. Mm. But she's a, she's a, just a character. But yeah, she'd just be like, oh my, this is a bad creature. And just. <laughs> Want well, nothing to do with that. <laughs> so what? Because your life is so, I want to say, exciting. I want to say exciting. So exciting. So scenic. Um, obviously, all the pictures on your blogs gives us definitely a feeling of being in Alaska, um, along with your writing. So, what do you think is the reason you put it? You wrote in third person instead of first. Because obviously, um, some writers prefer first person. Obviously, some writers prefer third. So, what was your reason behind writing in that point of view? You know, um, I actually this story did start out in first person. Believe it or not, really, I changed it. Um, I I think I changed it. I think I like the flexibility that uh, that third person gives in terms of. Um, being able to to change point of view throughout the story because when when the story first started it was all going to be in rose rose's perspective 
But then when I was like, okay, it's now no longer a short story. It's now I've got all these other characters coming in. And then it was like, yeah, I want to start it with uh, the one guy in the beginning. It's like, all right, I need, I kind of want to change it to third person. So that way I don't have that jarring effect of, okay, I'm in this person's head and it's first person. Now I'm in this person's head and I'm in first person. Right. So now can you tell everybody where they can reach you at, where they can find your book at and get in contact with you? Thank you for having me as a guest. If your listeners would like to know more about my off-grid Alaska adventures or my other writing, they're welcome to follow me at my website, dmshepherd.com. I like to refer to as North of Normal Alaska Tales. I'll be blogging this summer about our construction, sculpture, and my other writing projects out at the cabin. My Instagram and Twitter handles are both at dmshepherd13. They can find me on Facebook at Daniela Shepherd 13. Thanks again and have a great one. Thank you for joining us on the Fiction Addiction Podcast. Make sure you visit fictionaddictionpodcast.com for links on everything we talked about today, as well as awesome resources, additional tips, and fiction addiction merchandise.